Carry On Adventure Gaming. Ken Williams is back. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. A mini macro micro. Roberta and Ken Williams return to game design. Summer speedrunning. And a new contender for the first Easter egg. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. John, I'd like to give a special shout-out as I've, I've, I've been inserting this segment a lot lately in, in recent shows. Before we get onto the news, there's just a little pre-news amble for me. And uh, this week, it's a shout-out to the subreddit user Fragrant Passage 179 I swear they make up their names just so that they can hear us say them out loud. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Fragrant Passage, he was listening to a recent show where we discussed Castle Quest, and I jokingly said it would be fun to have a port of that game that uses the Amiga synthesized voice. Well, he only went and did it. There is a link in the show notes to an ADF file where you can download and run the Amiga version of this, and every line of this text adventure is now narrated by the, the Amiga using that voice. And I think our producer, Duncan, might actually be able to drop in a clip of that playing right now. So let's have a listen. Welcome to Castle Quest. Would you like instructions? You are in a large, tarnished grass bed in an old, musty bedroom. Cobwebs hang from the ceiling. A few rays of light filter through the shutters. There is a nice stand nearby with a single wooden drawer. The door west creeps in the breeze. A macabre portrait hangs to the left of an empty fireplace. The shutters are closed. There is a silver bullet here. It's as grating and wonderful at the same time as you would imagine, isn't it, John? <laughs> it's everything I thought it would be. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so thank you very much to Fragrant Passage. And let's go on to our first story, John. Neil, Ignoring what I'm sure you now know about the history of computers, when you get asked what the first home computer was, what answer still immediately pops into your mind? Why, the Altair 8800, of course. We all had one of those in our <laughs> living room. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. The, the Altair you might have had if you were super geeky, but I immediately think of that trinity of the first easily accessible computers. So the TRS-80, the Commodore PET, the Apple II. Those are the three that spring to mind for me. Why is that, John? Yeah, well, I still think about the Apple II. I mean, after years of being told in, in various subjects in school and from, from people that this was the first home computer, and, I, and of course, I believed it, that's still the image I get uh, of the computer that started this whole revolution. But of course, Neil, it's untrue. Uh, the Apple II, the PET, uh, that, that holy trinity that you mentioned, they might have been the first computers to achieve acceptance on a mainstream scale, but the computers, but computers for hobbyists existed well before then. Uh, from the button-based Wang twenty-two hundred to the more familiar uh, Altair eighty-eight hundred, or even machines that did sell with a keyboard like the Apple One, uh, there was a small but growing market of computers that you had to assemble yourself, but gave you a tremendous amount of processing power compared to even what a decade before would have taken up the space of an entire room. Uh, Neil, do you have any kit computers in the cave at the moment? I do. I have a wonderful example of a kit computer, although it was an off-the-shelf kit because 
some of the ones that you described there you know these are things that popped up in like amateur radio enthusiast magazines and things like that you'd get the schematics and you would build them that's how hardcore it was but the mm -hmm. example i have was sent in to me recently by john mccluskey and it's a sinclair zx81 now you could buy these as kit or in pre-assembled form and a lot of people would go for the assembled form just to make it nice and easy but the one i've got here is a kit and inside it is an issue one motherboard so the very first and all of the components that came with it originally all the capacitors wow. the ula everything all in its baggies still just like the day it was made and my first instinct when i got this was this thing was made to be built kits are made to be built they need to be used the processor needs to warm up and it needs to fulfill its destiny i, sh I should make a video <laughs> about building it but then it dawned on me that that's exactly what everyone did of course right. they built them that, that's why they, they bought them so to have such a pristine example in kit form is really quite a rare thing i think i'm not seeing many others out there there are some but i'm really not seeing many others and so after careful consideration and a poll on YouTube, which was weighted. <laughs> That's <laughs> how we solve all of our existential yeah, questions these on days. YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> Would you build it? <laughs> Initially, there was a surge for build it and then don't build it, clawed it back on the polls. Mm. So I, I, I've, yeah, I've settled on let's not build it. Let's put it in a nice display cabinet. So yes, in answer to your question, I've, I've got a lovely ZX81, and I'm afraid its destiny is different from all the others. It's going to sit in a display case, yeah. <laughs> How about you, John? Have you got any kits? I don't have any kits at the moment, but the project I'm going to tell you about has me teetering on the edge of a purchase. Um, you see, in, in 1965, uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, otherwise known as DEC or possibly even DEC, uh, released what is commonly thought of as the first ever microcomputer, the PDP-8. Now, keep in mind, what was micro in 1968 isn't necessarily what we think of as micro today. Uh, the PDP weighed in at a slim trim of 250 pounds and was about four feet wide. Uh, there was no keyboard. All of the input was controlled by a bank of switches on the front panel, uh, which was also flush with blinking lights as well as the ever-popular paper tape reader. Uh, the thing looked like a combination of a control panel and the original Starship Enterprise crossed with a Hammond organ. Um, the PDP-8 sold incredibly well for its time. Uh, DAC ended up moving around 50,000 units at a cost of around $18,500 a piece uh, before the machine was finally discontinued in 1979 in the wake of this, the smaller machines coming out. And of course, it's worth remembering that $18,000 is the equivalent of about $150,000 today. So uh, while PDPs haven't quite held their value over the years, uh, like almost all examples of vintage tech, they're not cheap either. Uh, working models sell well into the two or $3,000 range. So if you don't have that kind of money or floor space, but you'd like to dip your toe into the world of early microcomputers, you are in luck. Uh, there's a Swiss design firm known as Obsolescence Guaranteed. I love that name. Uh, they've created a six-tenths size replica of a PDP-8 known as the PiDP-8. Uh, this particular model is the PDP-8-I, which was released in 1968 and is probably the most recognizable model. Uh, from the period fonts to the beige and brown buttons and yellow lights, this thing ticks all of the retro boxes you could ask for. And at six-tenths scale, it fits comfortably on a bookshelf. Um, Neil, what do you think of this thing? Am I speaking your language here? You had me at Swiss design. 
like a finely made <laughs> wristwatch. <laughs> and you mean to tell me that 60s computers are now small enough to fit on your bookshelf, John? I mean, it, it we does, live in an amazing world. What a, what a time. They'll be in our pockets next. Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it does sound like something I'd love to have on the shelf. But would it be anything more than a, a geeky curio, anything more than a lava lamp sat up there on my shelf? Or can you actually do the stuff that this was designed to do? Uh, you'd use you do the same thing that you do with all retro tech these days, Neil. You stick a Raspberry Pi in. <laughs> uh, seriously, there's a Raspberry Pi-based PDP emulator that can be fully integrated into the machine so you can operate it in the exact same way you would the original system. Um, you can also connect it to a proper serial terminal or even log into the machine with your modern computer's Wi-Fi. So lot, lots of options there. Pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do poke a lot of fun at just putting a pie in it. Just put a pie in it is a silly catchphrase that you hear in a lot of places. But, um, you know, if you're at all curious about learning how this old tech ran, then it is a really good example of very low cost hardware um, making traditionally very high cost hardware accessible to us. You know, even if you were a geek in the 60s, you'd have to know the right people or have the right job to have access to a PDP computer. And there are PC emulators out there for the PDB-8, but that little case with those lovely fonts and the, the lovely color scheme that you've described there, hopefully Duncan's able to put a picture of it up while we've been talking because it does look great. Yeah. Um, you know, to have that to have that dedicated just to the task makes it that much cooler rather than it just being another window on your PC. So, yeah, I like that. It doesn't matter that it's, that it's up on your bookshelf. It could just as easily be that four-foot-wide thing you know in a room humming away as it was in the 60s on the other side of your wall you can pretend like it is if you want because you're accessing it remotely using a terminal in the same way that you might have done back then so um yeah i'm on board with this i like the idea of it john me too me too and if you're interested in acquiring this pdp8 replica for yourself it's going to set you back around 250 bucks, including shipping, which is about a tenth of the price, uh, not including shipping, of an original working model. And at 250 pounds, those original working models are not going to ship free. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, if you do end up with one of these things, please let us know in the comments. John, are you keeping up with the Commodore? Heck yeah, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. Of course you are. And I'll tell you who else is. And that's RetroRewind.ca for all your Commodore needs. And this week, they're taking pre-orders for the supply of the brand spanking new Amiga OS 3.2, which we discussed in last week's show. The result of more than two years of intense and relentless work from a team of over 60 people who have contributed to produce a new version of the operating system that all Amiga owners are going to want to load up on their machines. If you're using a Revision 5 Amiga 500, however, you will need a Kickstart ROM adapter, but Retro Rewind have got you covered there. They can supply that for just $10 with speedy international shipping. RetroRewind.ca is the place for Commodore owners to shop. Check them out. And we'd like to thank Retro Rewind for supporting today's show. The next story this week is both big news and not really much news at all, all at the same time. And we'll start with the big news because it's huge for a certain vintage of Retro Gamer. YouTuber Space Quest Historian broke the news this week on his channel that he'd been contacted by a game developer who informed him that he was working on a top-secret project, a game for none other than Ken and Roberta Williams, the original founders of Sierra. At first, of course, he laughed off this tip-off from a random person on Twitter with healthy scepticism, but was soon back with an apology after he pinged a message to Ken Williams himself, who replied with the message, he is right and it is true. 
So, Ken Williams has confirmed that they are back and a project is in the works. And this is big news. But now we come on to the details. <laughs> and that's pretty much where the story ends. There is no news. There's no hints. There's no teasers. There's no idea of whether it's a rejuvenation of an old franchise or if they've created an entirely new universe. I've, I haven't even got any idea if this is even a point-and-click adventure game or something completely different. So um, the news kind of falls flat there, but it's still big news within itself. Uh, I did, of course, meet this news with massive excitement and, and also some trepidation, John, because Ken and Roberta Williams are real gaming heroes to me. They started out making games on the Apple II where they combine text adventures with imagery in the game Mystery House. Uh, this is 1981 this happened. Roberta was writing the story. Ken was coming up with um, a coordinate or a vector-based graphic system. Ken was already a serious programmer, but Roberta got him, drafted him in to uh, work on the imaging system that she wanted to go with her stories. And he, he enabled lots of images to fit into a very limited amount of storage and memory on the Apple II at the time by using this coordinate system and it worked really well and of course they met that that was met with great success they went on to create the king's quest series originally in collaboration with ibm for their ibm pc junior uh, and then it broke out into uh, ibm and ibm pc compatibles and they went on to define the adventure game genre becoming a huge publishing house into the 90s and we do remember them for their adventure games let's not forget they did so much more it's it's Sierra who published Half-Life, for example. So they were so much more than adventure games. So I'm excited. I'm also fearful because can you imagine how you'd feel, John, if Ken and Roberta Williams made a comeback and their comeback was a, a Candy Crush puzzly style game with microtransactions? Published by the newly reformed Apogee. To yeah. just connect all the dots there. <laughs> it would be devastating. It would. But, you know, I'm sure they've got better judgment than that. And... I think my fears are just a reflection on how much I want them to succeed with the comeback and coming back with the right thing. I just don't want them to screw it up. So, John, do Ken and Roberta have what it takes, in your opinion, after all this time to make a smash hit video game? Yeah, I think they probably do. Uh, after all, in their genre, uh, you know, I know that they... Sierra's done a lot of things, but Ken and Roberta are, are really known for adventure games. And with adventure games, it's all about the writing. It's all about the puzzles. Uh, all they have to do is find the right engine. And there, there are definitely enough engines out there that they can stick their, their story into. And, and I think they've got a shot. You know, if nothing else... They're going to sell a bunch of copies based on their reputation alone. You know, if Paul McCartney puts out a new record, people are going to buy it no matter what. And Ken and Roberta Williams have the same sort of reputation in the uh, in the gaming world, I think. The Beatles of the retro gaming world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. God, we, it'd be good. We, we, we should come up with a list of names to make that Beatles retro gaming supergroup. It, it would oh, be in it. Absolutely. Look for that in a future story on This Week in Retro. <laughs> But uh, yeah, a few months back, I did read Ken's book uh, about the history of Sierra. And, and you can find that at kensbook.com if you're interested. And it was super insightful and enjoyable. And it left me with no doubt that Ken is still firing on all cylinders. And Roberta was also writing a book. Uh, can you guess what the address, the website address for that was, John? I'm going to take a shot in the dark, Neil. Is it is it robertasbook.com? <laughs> <laughs> kensbook.com and robertasbook.com and hers is a work of fiction set in 19th century Ireland so she's still spinning yarns uh, there's absolutely no rust whatsoever on either of them they are still doing what they do so it does bode well uh, I think 
if they decide to give us a, a classic back to basics, good old fashioned story driven adventure game. That's what I'm hoping for. I really, really am. John, thinking about the Sierra back catalogue, do you have any favourites from the Williams stable? Um, well, Neil, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Sierra's adventure games. I-, I think that they're needlessly punishing. I don't think that they hold up as well today as the LucasArts games do. Uh, however, I do have to tip my hat to the original King's Quest. Um, it pretty much single-handedly modernized the genre of adventure gaming by giving the player direct control over a, a moving character on screen. That was something that had never really been done before. So is it King's Quest that you, you'd most like to see a remake of? Yeah, I'd like to see all of the King's Quest games rewritten. Uh, just remove all of the stupid ways to die. Remove all the ways you can accidentally soft lock your game by not getting an item at a certain location and then not being able to go back there. Uh, get rid of all of the things that just infuriate me <laughs> about about classic Sierra games. Uh, I think it would definitely be doable, but for fans of the series, they would probably hate it because what I find infuriating, they probably find delightful for some weird twisted reason. <laughs> there's no, we've got such capacity on machines now. There's no reason why you couldn't release those original games and have a rewind button so you can just rewind back to a point in the game go uh, okay i'm going to pick that thing up and Mm -hmm. then fast forward again with it in your inventory (laughs) they could probably work something like that out. exactly i'd love to see that yeah but i'm not entirely sure who owns all the rights to the series these days so uh, i suspect it's not them it's probably been sold many times over somewhere down the line i don't know i don't know but that wouldn't stop you though um there's no reason why you can't come up with a game that's so very similar in style that it might just as well be a King's Quest game in all but name. So there's nothing to stop them, really. I personally was a big Police Quest fan and a Leisure Suit Larry fan. Uh, but just like the Space Quest series, they employed the talents of other writers like Al Lowe to give them their characters. So if it's a small team and it's story driven by the Williams, it would make sense to go all King's Questy or to maybe tap into the research accrued by Roberta for that mid 19th century novel that she's been writing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm I'm speculating. I'm taking wild stabs in the dark here. We're just going to have to wait and see what becomes of it, John, I think. Yeah. But um, I will wager this. I, I think I think that we might see perhaps some kind of chapter-based releases like we saw when we had the revival of the Sam and Max games by Telltale Games. That was back in, we're talking 2006, 2007 when they came out. So they're almost retro in themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'll take a wild guess that maybe we'll get episodic releases of a classic adventure style game in a nice modern engine. That's that's where I'm going to pin my hopes uh, and expectations. And I fully expect to see that quote thrown back at me in six months time in the subreddit when I've got got it all completely wrong. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Watch this space. But I'm excited to have them back. Neil, if there's one thing you can count on in the retro gaming community, it's the biannual festival of the world's top speedrunners at Awesome Games Done Quick. Since 2010, the world's most nimble finger gamers have descended upon hotel ballrooms and locations throughout the United States to show off their skills at beating games in times that mere mortals can only dream of. Uh, Neil, have you ever watched any of the Games Done Quick events? I haven't actually, John. Uh, all my speed running viewing is in the form of watching Twitch streams or the occasional YouTube video, usually when a world record's been broken, and I just want to see that someone at the peak of their gaming break that world record. But I've not specifically seen awesome Games Done Quick. Am I missing out by not watching them? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, it's it's an event to be sure. It, it combines all of the speed running action, like you said, from YouTube or Twitch streams, but it combines it with a telethon style fundraising event where half of the battle is, is watching people struggle to stay awake and making sure that the thing doesn't fall apart at the same time, watching people come in and out of the audience era, area, falling asleep in their chairs, all that stuff. So I usually make time to watch Summer Games Done Quick. Uh, as being a teacher by profession, I have lots of time to stay up into the wee hours of the morning to watch my favorite games being run, uh, which are usually the more obscure choices they save for after hours. Uh, if you don't know, this event runs 24 hours a day for seven straight days. Uh, it's quite a feat, and it's grown exponentially over the last five years to the point where they actually sell out these huge event spaces where all of the action happens, and the action's all for a good cause. Um, games Done Quick in January uh, benefits the Prevent Cancer Foundation, and then the winter event, Summer Games Done Quick, collects donations for Doctors Without Borders, of course, both very worthwhile charities, and they raise a lot of money. I mean, every year for both events, they raise over a million dollars. So, um, Neil, would you consider yourself to be a speedrunner? Uh, what games can you complete without breaking a sweat? Uh, I think you can guess the answer to that. <laughs> but um, last week I played through Ultima 7 uh, because I wanted to play through it in the super high resolution mode that you can use in the Exalt engine. So that's fresh in my head at the moment. And of course, Ultima hasn't had a mention on the show for a while now. So it's got to get its name in and, and I'll that's speed right. run that while it's fresh. Um it's the pe people do speedrun RPGs, don't they? I think people speedrun Absolutely. Skyrim. There's actually a whole separate event called RPG Limit Break that is nothing but RPGs. Okay, okay. So there, there we go. Um, yeah, so I'll do that while it's fresh in my head. But but in general, I, what's the opposite of a speedrunner, John? I, I'm more of like a shuffling in my slippers kind of <laughs> A runner. shuffling ambler. <laughs> yeah, shuffling ambler. Just taking in the scenery and enjoying the game. But I do get it in so much as I've been utterly addicted to shaving milliseconds off of my times in games. Games like R Factor or Project Gotham. But those are car racing games. So that's that's part and parcel of the game. If you're not trying to beat your times in that, then, then what the hell are you doing playing them? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, I do get it. I've never felt the desire to try and take a millisecond off my time in, for example, completing the dam level on GoldenEye. I know that's quite a famous one that speedrunners right. like to do. I would rather try and get more headshots or take fewer hits or have higher accuracy. The, the, the time element is not so important to me. Um, but yeah, I understand the, the skill involved in doing that. And I think we've all tried to blast through, for example, the first levels of Super Mario as quickly as possible. You know, just trying to bash through it as quickly as you can. And most sane people try that and they get pretty frustrated with it. And then they wind back the speed and concentrate on just just making it through the level it becomes less about the speed most sane people uh, <laughs> and then there's speedrunners john which are you um i i guess I, i've got my toe in both both camps uh, i can beat a couple games pretty quickly but nowhere near the speed that the pros can do it uh that, that you'll see it in an event like this uh the adams family on the amiga or the super nintendo is probably the game i can complete faster than most people but I can run through Chippendale Rescue Rangers on the NES pretty quickly, too. Uh, but when you watch the, the people at the top of their game, these elite level speedrunners ply their craft, 
you realize pretty quickly they're operating on a whole different level. Um, this year, the event Summer Games Done Quick, it's being held from July 4th through 11th. And similar to last year, the event is being held only online, unfortunately, due to coronavirus restrictions. Um, luckily, speedruns lend themselves incredibly well to a virtual environment. And while I'm sure I'll miss the audible audience reactions to a particularly cool trick or a funny glitch, I'll still be tuning in. Uh, some notable retro runs this time around include a Grand Theft Auto 3 run, which is, should be interesting to see speedrun, uh, a blindfolded speedrun of Mario 64, which I, I can't believe, but I, you know, I trust that that will actually happen, and then you've got the traditional four-way Super Metroid race at the conclusion of the event. Do people actually get very far playing Mario 64 while blindfolded? They beat the game, Neil. That's wow. that's, that's what they do. Uh, these these folks mean serious business. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, I suggest you check out the Mike Tyson's Punch Out blindfolded speedrun. It's incredible. <laughs> um, so one thing I've always wondered about looking at the schedule of these events is the absence of any eight or sixteen bit computer games. Uh, Neil, why do you think classic consoles get all the speedrunning action, but the range of classic micros get no love? Because micro users are not insane, John. Ah, yes, good point. <laughs> we, we we speed run with our benchmarks, not with games. But um, yes, yeah, speed running is weighted towards consoles, I guess, because there's the ease of use. And in the in the case of cartridge-based games, much quicker load times. Because when you don't get it right, and you don't get it right over and over and over again, you don't want to be faced with really long load times. So um, I think I think that probably makes the whole process a lot easier for for people. Mm -hmm. But there are micro games out there that are speedrun. For example, I discovered there's an MS-DOS port of Mega Man, which is considered to be one of the worst Mega Man games ever made. But mm -hmm. it is suitable for the speedrun challenge that it presents. There's obviously quirks about this game that, that make it really good for speedrun events. So that's a popular one. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder, John, if there's ever been the opposite. Has there ever been a slow run? You know, has anyone ever tried to complete a game in the slowest time possible? Maybe, maybe there's someone out there who started playing Strider 20 years ago and is still timing themselves pixel by pixel, inching through the game. That Sign me up for that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like some insane contemporary art project, Neil. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, all that said, though, uh, some people really dislike the concept of speedrunning. They think it ruins the game. Uh, they think that playing through it as fast as possible takes all the fun out of the natural flow of a game. Uh, I disagree, though. I think for the most part, speedrunners truly love and respect the code that these games are made of, and they know it by heart backwards and forwards. Uh, you can tell, uh, you can just tell by the way they talk about the game as they play it. Uh, in a way, speedrunning a game is the ultimate love letter to the designers of a game, where you dedicate hundreds of hours planning out routes and executing things perfectly to get to the end in the fastest time possible. So, uh, I wish Summer Games Done Quick all the luck in the world with this event, and I hope they're able to continue to raise a big pile of cash for Doctors Without Borders so they can continue to serve people in need. You can watch all 168 hours at twitch.tv slash gamesdonequick. I'm looking forward to it, John. That'll be my first one, and uh, I'll watch as much as I can. John, as that classic much-loved song goes, only Amiga makes it possible. Oh yeah, Neil. Nothing else can make it possible. Whatever it is. <laughs> Whatever it is. That's right, John. We don't ever question the wisdom of the song. <laughs> only Amiga makes it possible, and only AmigaForever.com makes it super easy, slick, and legal to try out for yourself and try to discover what it is.
Since 1997, the Amiga Forever package has been offering an easy to way, easy way to enjoy the Amiga with accompanying games, applications, and historic videos and galleries to not only help you emulate the Amiga, but also completely immerse yourself in the history of the machine. If this interests you, you can enjoy Amiga Forever from just $9.95 for the value edition at AmigaForever.com. And we'd like to give special thanks to Amiga Forever for supporting our show today and for making it possible. If I were to ask you, John, what would you consider to be the first ever Easter egg? Um, the one that always comes to mind is Adventure on the 2600. Uh, you know what I mean, the hidden room that displays the text that says created by Warren Robinette when you get to it. Uh, it's funny, after that was discovered, Atari pivoted from trying to remove it on all subsequent releases to encouraging programmers to put Easter eggs in all their games. Did they do that? I didn't know they did that. Uh, it's, yeah. That's funny. It's not surprising. I mean, every single bit would have counted when they were producing cartridges back then. But yeah, no fun at Atari. They were so they were so bent on not giving any programmers any recognition at all. It was insane. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I remember stories about that. But while that is a very very early example of an Easter egg, it's not the first. It's not the first. Um, I think it was popularized well before, but also it was a part of the story for Ready Player One. That was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. So that sort of perpetuated the myth. But another example I'm aware of is in the 1977 game Spitfire on the Fairchild Channel F. That was the first games console with ROM cartridges predating the Atari 2600. And when you put that game in, it simply asks you the question, G? Question mark? And that, that letter G in a question mark was typical for games on the system. You'd be expected at that point to press 1, 2, 3, or 4 to start the different game modes. One player, two player, versus computer, whatever mode you wanted. But in that particular game, if you press 3, nothing, nothing happened on the screen. There was no feedback. But behind the scenes, it did trigger the start of the Easter egg. So you press three, and then you'd have to input a 48-button sequence using the buttons oh one to four. <laughs> so three, four, three, two, four, two, one, two, etc. And if you got all 48 correct, it would display a screen that says, done by Michael K. Glass. He was the programmer of the game. So that's an earlier example of an Easter egg. And um, it's a hell of a lot of effort to see such a simple message. It's certainly not the Konami code. <laughs> but um, for the programmer, it was probably a fun source of satisfaction, knowing that they'd got that hidden away in there. And if we go back earlier, what I think is the first known example in an arcade cabinet is the game Starship One, which shipped in 1977, but was programmed, would have been 76. And if you hold down a combination of buttons on inserting a coin into that cabinet, you see the message Hi Ron appear on the screen very briefly. Mm. Uh, now, the, all these stories have been discovered in really interesting ways and, and explained in detail using links, which we'll include in the show notes at um, edfries.wordpress.com. So they've done great work in uncovering all of these. And the next story also comes from them because we can go back even earlier thanks to this week's news. All the way back to either 1967, 1968, or thereabouts, and the DEC PDP machines, which we were discussing at the top of the show today. It's not in a game, but it's in the TOPS 10 operating system. That was the OS for the PDP 10 mainframe, I think it was. And uh, in the OS is a simple texted editor called TICO, which is an acronym for text editor and corrector. That was part of the OS going all the way back to the PDP-1 in 1962, but looking at the source code, the Easter egg wasn't present 
in the text editor at that point. It appears to have been added later when it was ported by a chap called William or Bill. Mm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but we here, why here? Difficult to say, but that was in 1967-ish that he did that. So quite simply, you'd create a new text file in the editor by typing in the command make. That was the normal operational use of the program. But if you typed in make space love, it would respond with not war, question mark, which of course was an anti-war slogan from the 60s, make love, not war. Mm -hmm. So that is a brand new Easter egg that's been discovered. And to date, we think it's the earliest, around 1967. Perhaps there are earlier ones out there from IBM engineers that we don't know about because they would have been doing things all the way back in the 1950s. Who knows? But right now we're back to 1967 or thereabouts, thanks to edfries.wordpress.com, who explains all of that work. Now, John, can you remember the first time that you discovered an Easter egg in a game or otherwise? I don't know if I've ever found an Easter egg on my own in terms of finding someone's initials somewhere, but I... I do remember always being sort of obsessed with breaking out of the natural barriers of a game. Uh, for example, the way that you can climb up to the top of the screen in Super Mario Brothers and run along the same area where all the text and the score is. I thought that that was really neat. There were some Atari games that I discovered a way to do that with too, but unfortunately a lot of times it would just crash the game. Um, but at the time, of course, I thought I was the only one who knew how to do any of this stuff. But to be honest, uh, most of the discoveries that I made in that respect came from reading about them in gaming magazines and then just trying them out for myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, Super Mario Brothers one. I, I've used that one and it, it is great fun if you can get up there at the top of the screen. Um, and there were glitches as well, which were completely unintentional. Like I discovered one on the Amstrad where you could go through walls when mm. playing Bruce Lee. But mm. you know, that's that's glitchy rather than Easter eggy. The, the programmer was probably pretty annoyed that that made it into the game. Yeah, it's sort of an anti-Easter egg. <laughs> exactly, <yeah. laughs> exactly. Um, but what I really enjoyed was in Excel 97, uh, there was an Easter egg in there, which, of course, it's a super serious app and there's no fun to be had in Microsoft Excel. Well, not so, because if you tap in a certain search string, which involved the cells X97 and L97, I seem to remember from memory, you could you could trigger it to the screen would just go blank and then a 3D flight simulator would appear. Um, <laughs> it was a bit like a bit like the engine in Magic Carpet with sort of smooth 3D landscapes that you could fly around. Very simple, but really quite impressive at the time. And of course, you could pop this right up in the middle of a lecture. I was at college at the time, so I would have been in a sort of a quantitative methods lecture or something like that. Oh, and you could you could pop up this 3D flight sim. And there was no way the lecturers could remove it because it was baked right into Excel. Uh, it wasn't like somebody had put a rogue game on the network. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And uh, in, in the respects of, you know, East, in those respects, Easter eggs became a bit of a problem. It, I right. don't remember such a thing appearing in later versions of Microsoft Office. I think Microsoft got to a point where they started to crack down on, you know, all of the code had to be audited. You couldn't be sneaking things in. Yeah, well, you know, in an era where security is so important, whenever programmers are making backdoors into things like that, uh, I can understand why it would make them a little bit skittish. Exactly. You know, you start working with government agencies or you want to get your software into nuclear power plants. If they get mm -hmm. wind that, oh, you're slipping in silly little Easter eggs, then what else is in there? Exactly. So I'm not surprised that they disappeared. But uh, yeah, going back to the PDP one, the make love, not war message 
um, entirely different to 3D landscapes and the earliest example that we've found yet. If you'd like to find out more about this and all of our other stories, of course, check out the show notes. And thank you to Clara Dweller for submitting that story this week. Neil, last week's community question of the week was, what games company would you like to go back in time and see a fly-on-the-wall documentary made about and why? And uh, we got some great responses over on the subreddit. I'll read a couple for you here. Sure. Uh, the first one comes from Audio Collapse, and he says it's probably a toss-up between Psygnosis and Ocean. Uh, their logos are burnt into my mind from my days playing Amiga 500. Of those two, which would you rather see, Neil? Oh, um, it's hard, isn't it? Because I, I always associate Psygnosis with a quality product in terms of box and packaging, but not mm -hmm. all their games were that quality. So, yeah. you know, some of them were first, like Shadow of the Beast was an amazing tech demo as much as it was a game, but it wasn't a particularly amazing game. Likewise, Ocean, they had their duffers as well. Um, they would reuse engines a lot, like Lethal Weapon, Adam's Family, very similar game engines. They would recycle a lot of stuff just to get film licenses out the door. Do I have to pick one, John? It's a real difficult decision between well, those two. I mean, they, I, here's what I'd like to see for Psygnosis. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the meetings where we're like, okay, we're, we're putting forth 95% of our budget on this awesome Roger Dean artwork. <laughs> and 5% is going to be left to you, the coder. Do what you can. Um, and then, like you said, with Ocean, I'd love to see some negotiations about the film licenses and things like that. All the promises that were made. We're going to make the greatest game ever based on, you know, Cliffhanger or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and, it'd and, be interesting to see what, what scripts they got that didn't make it into game licenses. Right. You know, the, right. weird, so, the weird things people must have thought, well, you can make a game out of this. No, that's not suitable at all. And with Psygnosis, that period of 16-bit transitioning to the Sony PlayStation and the decisions that they had to make. Um, and they get, you, you know, dropping the Amiga and the Atari where they'd made their name and moving into the PlayStation and all the associated risks. I think there would have been some really interesting meetings around that. Absolutely. So great answer there. Uh, Aunt Ethel, or Aunt Ethel, all right, it's 8 bit centric, I know, but Llamasoft because Jeff Minter. <laughs> I'm surprised there hasn't been a documentary about Jeff Minter already. He's such a fascinating guy. Yeah, I, I, I'm emailing jeff at the moment trying to get him to uh, come on for a retro tea break interview because i want to hear his stories uh, i've had the pleasure of chatting to him very casually at expos when i bumped into him uh, and he's just such a nice nice guy um and he's done so much for the games industry so yeah i i concur with that yeah and finally uh croc came and writes ultimate play the game their secrecy was legendary but i expect the day today was quite unspectacular so yeah, yeah that's super, a, super mean, secret. They, they they made such fantastic games going all the way mm -hmm. back to the you know 16K ZX Spectrum, but so much secrecy around them. Yeah, there must be stories right, right. to tell. So great answers, everybody. And as always, uh, we encourage you to uh, put your own answer in for the community question of the week and upvote your favorites. This week's question of the week is: Why do you think classic micros are underrepresented in the speedrunning community? So. Please post your responses in the subreddit, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. 
That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.